0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, Daniel chapter 7. Today and next week, in our continuing study of Daniel chapter 7, we are going to go where angels fear to tread. And we'll probably stick a fork in a few sacred cows as we go along. But we're also going to take a detour that I think will add some understanding to the life and times of Yeshua our Messiah and help us to get a clearer picture of where some of the messianic and in times religious concepts actually originated that are nearly universally credited to Christianity as new innovations. Now in our last meeting we examined Daniel's vision of the four beasts rising up out of the sea that parallels the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue made of the four metals back in Daniel chapter 2. And briefly, The first beast to rise up was said to be like a lion. The second beast to rise up was said to be like a bear. The third beast is described as being like a leopard or panther. And the fourth as being substantially different from the first three and thus it was not compared to any known creature from the animal kingdom. And what made this beast so different was its destructive and violent nature and that atop its head were ten horns. Now a key word to pay attention to is like. That is, the first beast was like a lion in some ways, but not entirely a lion. The second beast had attributes of a bear but wasn't exactly a bear. The third beast had similarities to a leopard but wasn't quite a leopard. This like a Terminology is going to become even more important in a few more verses. Now, the lion beast symbolizes the same thing as the golden head of the statue. The bear beast equates to the silver arms and chest of that statue. The leopard beast is indicative of the bronze hips and thighs. And the final beast, that fourth beast, is parallel to the legs of iron. Now each of these is a metaphor for the inherent characteristics of an empire that will arise and then in time collapse, only to be replaced by the next one in succession. Now the various metals of the statue represent outward characteristics of each empire as humans see them, while each associated beast represents the inward characteristics Character of each empire as the Lord sees them. Now, these four Gentile empires are generally agreed to be Babylonia, Media Persia, Macedonia Greece, and Rome. Now, there's some theologians who disagree with this list, and they say that the empires are Babylonia, then Media, then Persia, then Macedonia, Greece. And so Rome is not represented by any of these. A small handful say that the empires are Assyria, Babylonia, Media, Persia, and Macedonia, Greece, but again Rome is not represented. I think I can say without reservation that this rather tortured viewpoint not only doesn't hold up to what recorded historical hindsight shows actually happened, but is also born from the premise that Daniel is a fraud and is a book of Jewish fiction written in 160 B.C. instead of perhaps 530 B.C. as it claims. Therefore, there's no way that the Roman Empire can be the fourth empire or fourth kingdom. Now we've looked at this issue carefully in past lessons and we forthrightly dismissed it as little more than a modern secular attempt to discredit the Bible wherever possible and to deny the existence of the spiritual sphere and the domain of predictive prophecy in general and that's going to be my position for the remainder of our study of the book of Daniel let's pick up Daniel chapter 7 at verse 8 so open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 which if you have a complete Jewish Bible is page 1109 1109 We're going to begin rereading this at verse 8. While I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. In this horn were eyes like human eyes, a mouth speaking arrogantly. And as I watched, thrones were set in place, and the ancient one took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. Millions, millions stood before him. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. And I kept watching. And then, because of the arrogant words which the little horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed. Its body was destroyed. It was given over to be burned up completely. Now, as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. Now, I kept watching the night visions, and when I saw, coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man, he approached the ancient one, he was led into his presence, and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit deep within me was troubled. And the visions in my head frightened me and I approached one of those standing by and asked him what all this really meant. And he said that he would make me understand how to interpret these things. These four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant, the one that was different from all the others, so very terrifying with iron teeth, bronze nails which devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left, and what the ten horns on its head meant, and what the other horn which sprang up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly and seemed greater than the others. I watched. That horn made war with the Holy Ones and was winning until the ancient one came judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the most high and the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom this is what he said the fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth it will be different from all the other kingdoms it will devour the whole earth trample it down, crush it and as for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and yet another will arise after them Now he will speak, he will be different from the earlier ones, and he will put down three kings. He'll speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he'll be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed. Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. As for me, Danielle, my thoughts frightened me so much that I turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. I mentioned last time that in some ways I kind of like to avoid this chapter, but on the other hand, my wife would tell you that I don't mind occasionally opening a can of worms just to see what crawls out. And that's what we're about to do. Now verse 8 speaks of the little horn, an eleventh horn, that sprouts up among the ten horns that are on the head of the fourth beast. Now remember a horn represents a king. And the result of the little horn sprouting up is that it re- uproots and it removes three out of the ten original horns. The little horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly. The eyes symbolize a person of great enlightenment who possesses wisdom and uncommon insight. The mouth is for self-aggrandizement, and in this case, speaking falsely against the Lord. Now we're going to pause here for a few minutes as I want to explain to you the three primary theological doctrinal views based mostly on verses 1-8. through Now the reason I want to do this is as a way to reinforce that intelligent and well-studied people can disagree radically when it comes to examining unfulfilled prophecy. Since most Hebrew-roots Christians and Messianics come from a conservative and often evangelical Christian worldview, most have been taught what is called the pre-millennial doctrine concerning this vision of Daniel as well as other end times matters contained in the book of Revelation. And so many folks have not heard of the alternative viewpoints. I want to state emphatically that that we have to be most cautious in becoming too rigid in our thinking about any unfulfilled prophecy. Otherwise, we risk missing these prophetic fulfillments when they happen because they didn't fit some mental picture or denominational creed that, that we've adopted as unassailable. That is not to say that some in times doctrines don't better fit the actual words and sense of the scriptures than others. Rather, it's to remind us that the vast bulk of Jewish society in Yeshua's day and to this very day did not and do not believe that he is the Messiah, primarily because of man-made traditions and doctrines that were created by Jewish intellectuals and religious leaders. Jesus just didn't fit their predetermined mold for a Messiah. So, he was rejected. A bit more open-mindedness and humility, a little less rabbinical authoritarianism and fear of of, of one losing one's social circle, that would have made a great deal of difference in the outcome. And I have no doubt that there would have been many more Jewish believers in Yeshua if that had been the case. Now I'm determined to approach this difficult matter as intellectually and biblically honest as I can by not adopting any particular end times doctrinal package as an absolute. And I intend to teach you from that mindset. It's not a sign of ignorance, it's not a lack of of biblical knowledge to say sometimes I don't know or to admit that a prophetic fulfillment could be A it could be B, it could be a combination of the two it could be neither of the two sometimes it is the wisest thing we can do especially as we dare to enter the realm of unfulfilled predictive prophecy to admit we simply don't have sufficient information to come to definite conclusions and this circumstance is precisely what we're dealing with at this point in the book of Daniel and since it is so connected with Daniel the book of Revelation now that said let's take out our can opener and see what's inside first I want to begin by giving you a, a admittedly much too brief summary of the three major theological theological positions on these beasts and their meaning so that you can see how the same scriptural passages can conjure up vastly different speculations in the minds of theologians the post millennial viewpoint is that these four beasts represent babylonia media persia Macedonia, Greece and Rome they see this 11th horn the little horn on the fourth beast's head that speaks blasphemy blasphemy as either the Roman Catholic papal system or the Pope himself the saints or the holy ones spoken of in verses 21, 22 and 25 who are attacked by the beast are believed to be the church in our present age just as we commonly think of the church today. The ten horns represent ten kings or kingdoms who ruled more or less at the same time in the Roman Empire and these ten kings have already come and gone. They're in our distant past. And further, the messianic kingdom of glory is thought to be currently underway, existing right now in our present age gradually achieving greater power, greater purity, and then it will reach its peak when Christ returns. millennialists agree with the postmillennialists that the four kingdoms represented by the four beasts are Babylonia, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But the beast that has the ten horns are said to symbolize essentially the ten horns are said to symbolize essentially three distinct stages of the progression of the roman empire over time they believe that the first stage from the roman empire's uh, lasted from the roman empire's birth around the 1st century bc until it collapsed sometime in the middle of the 5th century ad Therefore, the ten horns on the head of the beast represent some number of kingdoms that survived the fall of the Roman Empire and they will rule at some point in history. The little horn to them is therefore the final king, the final Gentile king, and it is his kingdom that shall be destroyed by the return of Messiah. The saints or the holy ones are the New Testament church who will suffer tremendous tribulation at the hands of the little horn as the time of our Lord's second coming becomes imminent. Now the premillennial doctrine, the one most of you are familiar with, And by far the most popular one today, at least among Western Christians, agrees with the first two doctrines on their identities of the four empires that are represented by the four beasts. But that's about the only point of agreement. The premillennial belief is that the ten horns represent ten Roman kings who are yet to come. And they are part of what will be a revived Roman empire and that these are the same kings as depicted in the 13th chapter of Revelation. I'll have more to say about this later. Thus the fourth beast of Daniel 7 is the same as that strange and dreadful beast of the Apostle John's vision as recorded in Revelation 13. Now the little horn is typically held to be the Antichrist. A Gentile who will appear at the end of the so-called church age, become master of the world for a relatively short time before he's destroyed by Yeshua upon his return. Now while this is not universal within premillennialism, one widely held view is that the saints or the holy ones who are Persecuted and killed by this little horn are Israelites who will at the end of the church age finally inherit that kingdom of God that was promised to them through Abraham, Moses and David and the Jewish Christ will of course be that Israelite king of this kingdom of Israelite believers among some strains of premillennialism is the alternative identification of the saints and holy ones as generally Gentile Christians, perhaps including some Jews who've given up their Jewishness and thus become Christians. This theological viewpoint is mostly held by denominations that adhere to replacement theology. Under replacement theology, God is done with the Jews. So he has turned everything over to the New Testament church that at one time, namely in the Old Testament, he had promised to the Hebrews. Thus, essentially, the Old Testament represents God's original promise, the New Testament represents His change of mind, and in some denominations, a change in His nature. And lastly, the Kingdom of God is the same as the Kingdom of Christ, which is also known as the Millennial Kingdom. This is a future kingdom. It is yet to happen. Its center will be Jerusalem. And this new kingdom is brought about when Christ returns in the clouds. Now it's fair to say, I believe, that the post-millennial position I told you about, that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Messiah is already present on this earth, has lost a lot of steam, mostly due to World Wars One and Two because it's pretty difficult to establish that the world of the 20th and now the 21st century is perfected and it's more pure as compared to the world of the 1st century. So here we have the three most prominent end times theologies in a nutshell, but in reality there's a fourth one that has taken hold and gained broad acceptance. It is that there is no end times. And that's because the secular humanist academics who now run perhaps the majority of our seminaries and Bible colleges insist that because Daniel is the basis for practically all end times prophecy and because Daniel is a book of fantasy And because predictive prophecy is itself impossible, and the idea of a spiritual sphere can't be taken seriously, then there's no reason to be thinking in terms of a divinely orchestrated end of the world. So with all that information at hand now, let's return to more of what Daniel has to tell us about his vision. And as verse 9 opens, Daniel sees thrones, plural, being set into place, and upon one of these thrones sits the Ancient One, also known as the Ancient of Days. Now this Ancient One is God. In the context of the Trinity doctrine, we would say that this is God the Father. Judaism agrees that this is the God of Israel. What follows for the next several verses is a description of the final destruction of the entire Gentile based world government system as we know it today, and that has been in place in one form or another for eons. It is the various government systems that are represented by those four beasts. And while the place that God sits is called a throne, It's also what we could rightly call the judgment seat because from this seat he is going to finally righteously judge the world system and he's going to bring it to a close forever. Now, why is God here called and then envisioned as the ancient one? Is God really an old man with snow white clothing and hair the color of wool? See, the reason for this majestic imagery is that in the biblical times an extremely old person was highly venerated. This is one way to explain why the mysterious Melchizedek was so known and honored in Abraham's day. The elderly were seen as possessing wisdom that younger people could only aspire to. They were honored. They were treated with humble respect, if not awe, at times. Living a very long time was seen as a sign of favor from God. This is so unlike today, where the elderly are seen as out of touch, useless, an impediment to progress, an unneeded burden to family and society. Rather, it's the youth who are smart and needed and so have the most value. So is it any wonder that God the Father and His Old Testament are seen as archaic primitive remnants that are no longer relevant in the 21st century church while the youthful Son of God, the Christ, is the newer God who represents His progressive New Covenant? It all works together. And verse 10 continues with the explanation that Daniel saw rivers of fire coming from the Lord and from His throne. And thousands upon thousands were serving Him, millions upon millions standing before Him, and then solemnly a court was convened and books were opened. What better picture of the purpose of God's visit than this, he came to act as judge for all those who stood before him and then to destroy some with fire for the rebellion. More specifically, he is going to judge and destroy those four beasts and the little horn and all who follow them. Now, Biblically, fire is used for two basic purposes for purity and for annihilating totally to perfect what is good or to destroy what is evil and often the idea is to destroy what is not wanted in order to separate out what God wants to keep now let's notice the words that the court sat the court sat and connect that with the previous verse that thrones, plural, thrones were set. It seems obvious that there was a number of thrones and therefore there were many members of the court that was being convened. Who might the other members of the court be? One of the members is going to be introduced to us shortly. But as for the others, at this point we're not told. They might be angels They might be the souls of the martyred or simply deceased believers, at least these are the two options usually set forth by Bible academics. And the actions of those standing before God the Judge are said to be recorded in books. Therefore the books of the actions of the humans represented by their kings and their minions and of the little horn and his minions are recorded, we're told, in a heavenly book. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. Malachi 3.16 Then those who feared Adonai spoke together, and Adonai listened and heard. A record book was written in his presence for those who feared Adonai and had respect for his name. Verse 11 explains that for some reason God determined that the fourth beast should be condemned to utter and final destruction. The first three beasts, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, were spared, with their punishments being that their rulership over their empires would be removed. Further, their lives would be prolonged for what is usually translated in English Bibles as a time and a season now the aramaic words used are zeman for season and idan for time zeman points to a divinely ordained event or time or specifically a called out occasion such as a festival or a literal identifiable season like summer or fall idan is a word that is generic it's generic for time it's an unspecified time it's not unlike us asking what time it is or saying we're going to be gone for a time and then we'll return amount of time is not present within its meaning I think the best way to understand this verse and the phrase a time in a season is expressed by that wonderful Christian Bible commentator C.F. Keel, and he says this The first three beasts also had their dominion taken away one after the other, each at its appointed time. For to each God gave its duration of life, extending to a season and a time appointed by him. So a time and a season are here used as expressions, not meant to be deciphered as precise amounts of or, or, uh, uh, time or bracketed with predetermined dates. They are also not meant to be mysterious terms, just indefinite. Now stay with me. I, I'm not explaining all this to you just to give you some interesting Bible facts. Okay, this is building a foundation to help us understand what's coming in the next few verses. So, let's now take another short detour and look at something that we can't get quite as deeply into as I would prefer, at least not for the time being. But it is as good a time as any to point, point it out while the images of these four beasts of Daniel's vision are still fresh in our minds. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Easy to find, right? <clears throat> right at the end of your Bibles there. I want you to follow along with me. <clears throat> I'll give you a second to get there. Revelation chapter 13. And by the way, because the way this chapter was divided centuries ago, wrongly, I might add, the last words of chapter 12 should have been the first words of chapter 13. So I'm going to read them um, and then continue on into 13. Then the dragon stood on the seashore, and I saw a beast come up from out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads and on its horns were ten royal crowns and on its heads blasphemous names and the beast which I saw was like a leopard but with feet like those of a bear and a mouth like the mouth of a lion and to it the dragon gave its power its throne and great authority one of the heads of the beast appeared to uh, have received a fatal wound but its fatal wound was healed and the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement they worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? It was given a mouth speaking arrogant blasphemies. It was given authority to act for 42 months. So it opened its mouth in blasphemies against God to insult his name and his Shekinah, his glory, and those living in heaven. It was allowed to make war on God's holy people and to defeat them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Everyone living on earth will worship it, except those whose names are written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb slaughtered before the world was founded. Those who have ears, let them hear. Now as I mentioned earlier, the premillennial viewpoint is that the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 is the same as the beast that we just looked at here in Revelation 13. But is it? Maybe. But I have real doubts about that. Listen again to the description of the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 which is contained in verse 7. After this I looked into the night visions and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth. It devoured, crushed, and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it. And it had ten horns. Notice now the beast description of Revelation 13. This beast has seven heads. Our beast of Daniel seven, chapter 7 is not said to have seven heads. The Revelation 13 beast is like a combination, we're told, of the leopard, the bear, and the lion. The fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 is given no likeness to any animal at all, and in fact it is said to be entirely different from the first three, is it not? And further, while in Revelation 13 this single beast is specifically said to be a hybrid of the lion, bear, and leopard beast, in chapter Daniel 7, each of these animals, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, represents a separate and distinct beast and kingdom. Now, premillennialist scholars just wave their hand at this and say, no problem. This is just progressive revelation at work. So, what if the fourth beast now has seven heads? but a major problem is that the first three beasts seem to have become combined into one particularly terrible one in Revelation 13 and there is no mention in Revelation 13 uh, in the Revelation 13 beast of the little horn that sprouts among the 10 as in Daniel 7 and while I can't definitely rule out anything since this is seems to be at least, unfulfilled prophecy a plain and straightforward reading of revelation of the Revelation 13 beast compared with the fourth beast of Daniel 7 sounds like entirely different beasts even if some of the things they do are quite similar if these two are indeed the same beasts then I see something that's a lot closer to Darwinian evolution than biblical progressive revelation I told you we were going to stick a fork in some sacred crowds today. So here's something to consider as an alternative to the prevailing and popular view among the modern evangelical church that the Revelation 13 beast comes from the revived Roman Empire. Notice, stay with me please, notice that in the four beasts of Daniel's dream the total number of heads from all the beasts combined is seven. The first beast has one head, the second beast has one head, the third beast has four heads, and the fourth beast has one head for a total of seven. Notice how the beast of Revelation 13 is said to be a combination of of the lion, the bear, and the leopard but it also has the ten horns of Daniel's fourth beast and it has seven heads so it seems to me that the Revelation 13 beast is not a souped up version of Daniel's fourth beast rather it's a hybrid of all four of them that's exactly what's described So whatever this revelation beast in the end times is, it's going to bear characteristics and attributes and probably have some kind of historic if not also ethnic ties to all four of the Gentile kingdoms represented in Daniel's and Nebuchadnezzar's visions as opposed to simply being only representative of that fourth beast and the legs of iron. Bottom line. Here, I've presented to you a reasonable interpretation that says that the final revelation beast of the end times is not from a revived Roman Empire, but rather it contains elements from each of the Babylonian, Media Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. Now, am I correct? Only time will tell. But that's the nature of dealing with unfulfilled prophecy. Let's return to Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 is not only pivotal in this chapter, it is pivotal in redemption history. This is a biggie. Daniel suddenly sees clouds coming from heaven. And one like a son of man was coming upon those clouds. This unidentified being is then brought to the ancient of days. And then in verse 14, this one like the son of man is given by the ancient of days, dominion and honor and sovereignty over all peoples, nations, and tongues, meaning languages. This dominion he receives is forever. It will never pass away, unlike what happened to the four Gentile empires. This is speaking of dominion over the entire earth, over the entire human population, Gentile and Hebrew. Now, it is close to universal in Christianity that this being who's coming on the clouds, this one like the Son of Man, is Jesus Christ. And thus, this is a messianic event of profound significance. However, Judaism doesn't see it that way. It might astound you to learn that the rabbis interpret the being, who is the one like a Son of Man, as national Israel. So for Judaism, it's Israel that's coming on the clouds. Israel being seated on the throne next to God, the Ancient of Days. It's Israel to whom the kingdom is being given over, Israel who will have dominion over the whole earth. Now I want to break here, take a pretty major detour, to discuss the super critical term, one like the Son of Man. Because knowing who or what this being symbolizes is key to end times prophecies as well as to identifying the Messiah. And the first thing I want you to notice is the like a terminology is being applied to this mysterious Son of Man in the same way it was applied to the three beasts like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. So we have the contextual idea established in Daniel 7 that just as the three beasts who are like a lion, bear, and leopard but also aren't actually or fully a lion, bear, and leopard because they either don't exhibit all the characteristics of those animals or perhaps they do exhibit all the characteristics but to them are added additional unnatural characteristics for their species that now substantially changes their nature to the point that we can no longer reasonably think of them as typical lions, bears, and leopards. So this being coming on the clouds is said to be like a son of man but is not fully a son of man or perhaps is more than a son of man. This is meant to be mysterious to Daniel. Like all prophecy, we'll have to wait until it comes about and then in hindsight we'll understand it to its fullest. And yet, I think we can make a good case that we today have far more understanding about this Son of Man than Daniel did. The Son of Man is a concept that is developed throughout the Old Testament. But here in Daniel is the first place where the concept is given an official title the Son of Man. In Hebrew Son of man is Ben Adam. In Aramaic it's Bar Enosh. And since Daniel, uh, since Daniel 7 is written in Aramaic, then we read Bar Enosh. And in the early part of the Old Testament, son of man is simply the equivalent of saying human being. But by the time we reach the era of the kings, the term seems to begin to blur, to transform. The place where we first see this transformation, or taking on the characteristics of a dual meaning of the term the Son of Man, is actually the Psalms. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 872. Psalm 80. Read along with me. For the leader set to lilies, a testimony, a psalm of Asaph. Shepherd of Israel, listen. You who led Joseph like a flock... You whose throne is on the cherubim, shine out. Before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh, rouse your power and come and save us. God, restore us. Make your face shine and we will be saved. Adonai, God of armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them tears as their bread, made them drink tears in abundance. You make our neighbors fight over us. Our enemies mock us. God of armies, restore us. Make your face shine and we will be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You expelled the nations and planted it. You cleared space for it. Then it took root firmly and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It put out branches as far as the sea and shoots to the Euphrates River. Why did you break down the vineyard's wall so that all passing by can pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest tears it apart. Wild creatures from the fields feed on it. God of armies, please come back. Look from heaven and see. Tend this vine. Protect what your right hand planted, the sun you made strong for yourself. It is burned by fire, it is cut down. They perish at your frown of rebuke. Help the man that's at your right hand, the son of man that you made strong for yourself. Then we won't turn away from you. If you revive us, we'll call on your name. Adonai, God of armies, restore us. Make your face shine and we will be saved. look especially at verse 18 if you have something other than a complete Jewish Bible it might be verse 17 it says help the man at your right hand the son of man you made strong for yourself here the meaning of the son of man begins to blur on the one hand this seems to be about a human being an Israelite or a nation of human beings, Israel. But on the other hand, this Son of Man is at God's right hand. And it's said he's made strong for God. It's acknowledged by Jew and Christian that this psalm has messianic implications because Israel's in trouble. And it needs salvation from an entire world that seems to be against it. It needs to have God's favor restored upon it. And this Son of Man seems to be the key to make it all happen. Thus it is that Daniel chapter 7 and the mention of the Son of Man as a title... For this being who comes in the clouds and then is seated next to the Ancient of Days is progressive revelation about the Son of Man that we hear about in Psalm 80. Oh, but there's so much more to this story and how it so greatly impacts our understanding of Yeshua and what we read in the New Testament. So we're going to explore that further as we meet again next week.